Welcome to the third episode of Breaking the Case, True Stories by NYPD Detectives, a podcast series written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. The Baby Hope case began on July 23, 1991, when the body of a small child was found in a cooler on the side of a highway. They said that there was a body down the hill. We didn't want the baby to be called the cooler kid, so Sergeant Ma said, Baby Hope. Over the next two years, detectives chased every possible lead. Well, I remember having this meeting in the office, and we all looked at each other, and we said, like, yo, what's there left to do with this? And somebody said, well, let's, can we bury her? Our reporter is Edward Conlon, a former detective who worked in the South Bronx. A warning. This story contains graphic content. It may not be suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Episode 3, Baby Hope, A Colder Case. As the years went by, things got a lot better in Washington Heights. Crime peaked in 1991 with 122 homicides in the precinct. The next year it was 100, 76 the year after that. In 1994, the great change in policing began, with CompStat at the center of things. CompStat is the NYPD's data-driven crime-fighting and accountability system. By the end of 95, there would be only 40 murders in Washington Heights and Inwood. Still a lot, but there were three times that many only four years earlier. The lighter caseload gave the detectives more time to work on Baby Hope, but time wasn't what they needed. They needed information. And the best way to get it was to make the public pay attention. The older the case got, the more of a challenge that became. In the years after the funeral, there were a couple of stories in the Times about Baby Hope. All were features by acclaimed writers. But Murder Remains Unsolved isn't a headline that excites editors. You need an angle. And Jerry Giorgio was the angle. He made for great copy. One piece by Anna Quinlan was called Little Girl Lost. Jerry tells her maybe she never went outside to play in her life so no one ever saw her or knew she was there. Maybe she was shackled to a bed or a radiator. And then maybe one day the man of the house, if you can call him that, decided to have his way with her. Maybe she screamed too loud, maybe she resisted. This was a tragic, tragic life our baby had. Our baby. That's how Jerry thought of her. The next story about Baby Hope was mostly about him. It was 1995. The headline reads, Legendary Detective Wages War on the Word Unsolved. A couple of weeks before, Jerry made an arrest on a murder from 1981. A young doctor from Columbia Presbyterian had gone home to have lunch with his pregnant wife. Two guys robbed him, killed him for five bucks. The reporter calls Giorgio the St. Jude to murder cases that would otherwise have been mothballed. Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. In the doctor case, the victim's name was John Wood Jr. His wife Diane went on to become a doctor herself. She had their child a few months after the murder. She only remarried when Jerry told her he was close to breaking the case. She told the Times, my son's hero is Jerry Giorgio. Other career highlights included the murder at the Met case in 1980. A violinist was raped and murdered at the Metropolitan Opera. 
Jerry got a confession from a stagehand. Remember how I said the Jerry Orbach character in Law & Order was supposed to be based on him? Not true, in fact. I found out that Detective Lenny Briscoe was created by Waylon Green and Renee Balsier. Renee is a friend, and I emailed him. This is what he wrote back. Waylon Green and I created Briscoe, and neither one of us knew Giorgio. Briscoe was Jewish, Irish, an alcoholic with a reputation for small-time corruption and a ladies' man. Most people I talked to about Jerry only described his professional side, but Joe Resnick got a little more personal. Jerry, a true gentleman, a family man. You'll find guys totally committed to this job that neglect their families. Most of them end up in divorces or whatever. And then you have the guys that are just committed to their families and don't care so much about the job. Um, Jerry, I got to say, right up the middle. All right. Jerry Giorgio was Italian, a family man, etc., etc., etc. And Renee wrote and produced something like 500 episodes of Law and Order and its spin-offs, so I wasn't going to argue with him. But Jerry played a couple of bit parts on the show, including a character named Detective Jerry Giorgio. And Joe Neenan told me the actors spent time in the 3-4 squad. Joe Resnick remembers that as well. They would come up quite often, observe us. But to be quite honest with you, I don't watch any police shows. What I do know is Jerry Giorgio. So I'll put it in this perspective. If Orbach is charismatic, a suave fellow, a guy with a cool temper, sometimes stubborn attitude, a very caring person, then I'd say that he emulates Jerry. Orbach died in 2004, so there's no way to ask him. But Chris Noth, the actor who played Lenny Briscoe's partner, had plenty to say. I met Jerry in 1990. We were starting the series the first year. I was introduced to him and a couple of the other guys. They kind of took me under my, their wing right away. I was happy as a clam. I asked Noth what he got from Jerry that he was able to use as an actor. What I think I went to the most, and as I observed in them, was listening. Really listening without trying to make a judgment, but really hearing what they were saying, because that's what I saw them do, and then being able to pounce. I think the mistake the early TV cop shows always made is they show, you know, detectives throwing guys up against a wall and, and threatening them, you know, and getting tough, you know. I never saw that with Jerry. He was just crafty about how he got them to open up. The baby hope case really did get to Jerry. I remember that. That really got under Jerry's skin. The last story the Times ran about Baby Hope and Jerry Giorgio had a very Hollywood angle. When I asked Joe Resnick about it, he was, well, let's say there were other aspects of the investigation he was more comfortable talking about. As far as psychics are concerned, we just don't like using them because they'll throw out things like a last name. They'll throw out a thing like, I see the color green. I see a fence on a house, and other houses have fences. And now you find yourself going, like, saying, like, where are we going to go looking for this stuff? And if any of that turns out to be true, they'll turn around and say, look, it, I told you that. So we, ju we just don't like using them. I'm not a, a believer in it. I'm more of a believer in faith than I am in some psychic uh, tell me how to solve a case. I had a friend of mine who I went to high school with, and I won't say his name, but he calls me up one day and says, I think I could solve this for you. I says, solve what? He says, that little baby case. 
I said, how are you going to do that? So he says, I have a psychic friend of mine. I says, I don't believe in that stuff, but you know what? I'm going to try anything. I was desperate. So he brings this woman. And first we met her at the office. She seemed normal. Uh, but then we take her out to the cemetery. And between throwing water around, uh, some flowers, mumbling, whatever she was that she was mumbling, uh, she promised us, I will have this solved in six months. But then I think she got a little mad at me because I asked her what would the lottery numbers be for Saturday's drawing. And that was the last time I heard from her. But psychics had been involved from the beginning. This is Dan Rather on 48 Hours, back from the spring of 92. When well-known psychic Dorothy Allison approached the detectives about the case, they welcomed her. I don't believe it was her real father that murdered her. I believe that uh, the mother was present. But I do believe that this man is related to her as uncle, or she calls him uncle. When Rather brings it up with Joe Neenan, he sounds like he'd rather change the subject. We just, uh, we just haven't been able to piece it together. Uh, well, I can hear somebody uh, out there saying, wait a minute, Dan Rather tells me that these two guys are master detectives. The next thing, they're talking about dealing with psychics. Well, well I guess when you feel the hopelessness and uh, frustration with this case, you look for help from wherever it comes. For what it's worth, psychics made the story newsworthy again. And so you could say they helped in a way. Six years after Baby Hope was found, Dan Barry from The Times did a story about Dorothy Allison and her role in the case. The headline is, when technology fails, detectives call on a New Jersey woman's visions. Visions is in quotes. And he calls her a self-proclaimed psychic when there isn't any other kind. It's not as if she was practicing without a license. Here's what Barry found out. The use of psychics in criminal investigations often depends on how adventurous a law enforcement agency is and how desperate. Many departments, particularly in smaller communities, acknowledge using them. But the police department in Los Angeles, of all places, prohibits their use while a spokesman for the Federal Bureau of Investigation said that the Bureau, as a rule, does not retain or consult psychics, but he allowed for the occasional exception. As it happens, I know about one exception. My father was an FBI agent, and one of the cases he worked on was the kidnapping of Samuel Bronfman, an heir to the Seagram's liquor fortune, back in 1975. I forget what the psychics told him, but they were wrong. My father was pretty much of the same mind about them as Joe Resnick. Not a believer, but willing to try anything if there was nothing else to go on. This is the fun part of the story. But Detective Jerry Giorgio, a 38-year veteran who is considered to be one of New York's best detectives, is an admirer. He recalled that while working with her on the Baby Hope investigation, the two agreed to share a pastry at his desk. He cut the cake then handed her the knife and asked her what she was thinking. I'm just going to give you a name, Phil, she said, and he's not your guy. The story goes on. The knife was part of a set found in the apartment of a woman who had been murdered. Her fiancé, Phil, had bought the set, and he was not a suspect. I've been doing this a long time, Detective Giorgio said, and I was certainly impressed. As for the Baby Hope case, the detective said, Ms. Allison has provided no worthwhile leads. 
So far, he added. That's pretty impressive, I gotta admit. Jerry was going to do whatever he could. He'd have to retire that year. Joe Resnick was already gone from the precinct. Had been for a while. He'd been promoted to captain a week after the funeral, in fact. He'd been a cop for 20 years by then, and he moved up the ranks pretty quick after. Deputy inspector, inspector, chief. But he never let go of the case. In most of his commands after the 3-4 squad... Patrol Borough Manhattan North, Detective Bureau, Chief of Bronx Detectives. Resnick was in a position to make sure that work got done on the case. Not that detectives needed to be told, but Resnick was not shy about telling them. I first met Resnick in the summer of 2001, when he was my chief in the Bronx. I was brand new in the 404 squad, what's called a white shield detective. There's an 18-month trial period before you get a detective's gold shield. One morning, I caught a new case, the Gunpoint Bodega robbery. It happened a couple of hours before on the midnights. I was going through the paperwork when he called me at my desk. I almost dropped the phone. Chiefs don't call cops like that, not to say nice things anyway. He said, I noticed that lottery tickets were taken. You should get the numbers, check them with the State Lottery Commission. The perps are going to scratch them all, cash in any winners. I hadn't thought of that. I was glad he called. It might have felt as if Chief Resnick was looking over my shoulder all the time, but he had a lot of other things on his mind. He had Bronx homicide due surveillance on St. Raymond's Cemetery. Whether it was Easter, Christmas, a lot of the holidays, we would just send guys out there. And unfortunately, there's no electricity in the middle of the place, so we couldn't put up any cameras or anything. Uh, well, we eventually did that too, but that's, <laughs> that's something else. And that was just what he could get done in his official capacity. If I was stuck on that Frog's Neck Bridge uh, entrance, I'd just do a U-turn. My wife sometimes would say, where are we going? I says, you know where we're going. And if it was during daylight hours, I'd get off and I'd make a visit to the gravesite. And I'd find myself like talking to this kid because all I'm looking for is a good clue. People left teddy bears, flowers, religious items at the grave. People of all denominations, all faiths, you know, there's a Jewish tradition of leaving stones. I'd go out there numerous times, there'd be stones all over laid on top of the uh, stone itself. It just goes to show you that New Yorkers in general, how much care and concern they have for something like a case like this. Of course, Resnick wasn't only touched by the sentiment. Whatever was left at the headstone was potential evidence. I always had paper bags in my car, and we'd send them out to the lab but each time, and even, uh, it's unfortunate, the criminalist would call me and say, sorry, not good, not good, not good, meaning they couldn't lift any prints off of the stuff. Years went by. When Jerry Giorgio retired from the NYPD in 1997, he didn't retire. He'd do another 15 years with the Manhattan DA as an investigator, often working with Melissa Morges, the prosecutor assigned to the Baby Hope case since the beginning. Anyone who had been involved kept on top of it. They had anniversary masses at St. Elizabeth's in Washington Heights. Remember Mark Giffen? He was the licensed funeral director. Jerry was a homicide detective, and I worked in the medical examiner's office, so we always interacted with each other. And the, one of the first, anything new. That was, and we didn't ask on what. We already knew what the question was. Jerry, anything new? Mark, anything new? At the 3-4, some really highly regarded detectives kept working on it. Bobby Small, Tony Imperato. 
I've seen the case file. They weren't letting anything slide. But Small and Imperato retired in 2001. The case was 10 years old at that point. Resnick had to make sure people didn't forget. I started doing the homicide course back in 2001 when I was assigned to the Bronx. And I've been doing it ever since. I'll take everything that I've learned from detectives, not necessarily bosses, but from the detectives, and just share it. As far as Baby Hope case is concerned, I still show it today. Anytime I would show that picture of Baby Hope to anyone, I'd watch their face. Because then the reality sets in. What does a three to five-year-old little girl look like folded in half, tied up, and then placed in a cooler? What, you know, what would such a thing look like? And you could tell by the expression on their faces, some people turn away. Some people like look at it within their door, jaws drop open. And that's when it hits home, like why we took this case so serious. I think when the totality of that whole circumstance of how this kid was killed and her life story as short as it was, is really significant. I stress the importance of like never giving up. I made, I even committed myself, uh, you know, to say that it would be solved before I retired, something that I had never done before with any other case. In an earlier episode, Resnick talked about the phrase, we are them, which became the motto of his homicide investigation course. I asked him to tell me more about it. I'd say about seven or eight years ago, I walked away from doing a course, and then it dawned on me, why am I emphasizing what you can and can't do? What I should be emphasizing is why we do what we do. And that's where the we are them theme came into play. Um, I use it to today. I stress the fact that, especially with homicide victims, you have to place yourself in that person's shoes. But beyond that, if you can't place yourself there, then place a family member in that person's position. Then think of this. The only person they can rely on to solve that case is you. You have to accept that fact. It's, it's beyond empathy. It's seeing yourself and then, you know, doing what you have to do in a homicide case, solve that case. We'll be right back after the break. In 2003, the Baby Hope investigation was reassigned to the Cold Case Squad. Cold Case was part of the Fugitive Enforcement Division, and the new commanding officer of Fugitive Enforcement was Joe Resnick. It was time for Cold Case Squad to take a look at it. I am a firm believer in that also. If you take any case, you take Son of Sam case, where they found out the uh, car that got the summons. Son of Sam was identified through a parking ticket. That wasn't something that was investigated like when they got it. It was something that was done in a review of the case. Uh, and there's a lot of cases like that. You got to go over your notes. Sometimes people will tell you something that you think is really has nothing to do with it, and that'll solve the case. So I gave Cold Case that opportunity. And uh, they're another group of tremendous detectives that just put their heart in their work. My old partner, John Timpanaro, works in Cold Case. And he'd tell me he sometimes pick up a file and say, you know, there's a lot more we could do here. Sometimes things were left undone because it was from the crazy mayhem days of the 80s and 90s. And sometimes you see new opportunities with DNA. Other times, well, not every detective was Jerry Giorgio. So you can turn over stones that should have been turned over the first time, or you can turn them over again and look a lot harder. 
But there are other cases where you read through the file and think, wow, that squad really worked the hell out of this one. Baby Hope was a Jerry Giorgio case and a Joe Resnick case. So when Resnick took the case back, he was asking the detectives, did I screw anything up here? Was there anything I didn't see? Wendell Stratford was one of those detectives. He'd started on the job in 1983. He was part of the new headquarters squad started by Commissioner Bratton that eventually became Cold Case. I had the case. It, it was handed to me from another detective, uh, I believe Tommy Barnes. I had it for, you know, two or three years. You know, I did a few things with it, and, you know, we had the body exhumed and gotten uh, a better DNA sample from her. We followed up uh, particularly on a lot of things that the prior detectives had from the 3-4, um, mainly Jerry Giorgio. Um, he would tell us that, you know, we should go look at this or we should go look at that. The stones here had already been turned over again and again. But I was real busy on several other cases that I had in the Bronx and was getting ready to go to trial. And then Sylvia Bonet took it over at that point. And then I helped Sylvia as much as I could, you know, went down to D.C., we did America's Most Wanted, followed up on all the tips that came in, and then Sylvia uh, was going to retire, and she gave up the case, and Bobby Dewhurst took it. They kept up surveillance at the grave. Every so often, you know, we would go up and sit on the cemetery uh, to keep an eye on it. There are some famous people buried at St. Raymond's, gangsters and war heroes, the singers Billie Holiday and Frankie Lyman, the boxer Hector Macho Camacho, Typhoid Mary and Father Duffy of the Fighting 69th. I saw a brochure that lists Baby Hope as one of their celebrities. And that cemetery just has its regular visitors. There's the people who pay attention to certain graves. Professional grievers or, you know, just people who like going to the cemetery and, you know, looking at headstones and stuff. But, you know, there were some old women who were, you know, going by and putting flowers and toys on children's uh, graves. You know, you, you would think it was from a family member, but, you know, again, we were able to figure out that it wasn't. Psychics were consulted again. Wendell Stratford made it clear what he thought about that. My lieutenant at the time, he wanted to give it a try, but, you know, it went nowhere. In 2008, Chief Resnick was promoted again, put in charge of the Narcotics Division. By July of 2013, the Baby Hope investigation had gone on for 22 years. 12 years in the 3-4, 10 in cold case. It was only getting colder. After 40 years in the NYPD, Joe Resnick was still going strong, but he was facing mandatory retirement the next year. Did you think it would break in the end? Yeah, I, you know, I don't like sharing this, but I always had faith that we would solve this case. And it's one of, it's only one of two cases where I says, I'm going to solve this. And it's not because I committed myself to getting it solved. I don't, I, it's hard to explain. Um, you know, and the one other case, just to show you the comparison, was a, a elderly man in Queens who gang members had bum rushed going into his lobby and hit him with a Belgian block that they took from a tree outside and killed him. And I remember going up to that family, and there were three sons. I saw my three sons and those three sons. And I took the oldest, which he was around 15 at the time. I said, come here, son. I says, you know something? We're going to find out who did this. 
And I walked away saying to myself, like, why did I just say that? But I, I, it's not that I gave extra resources, but we just kept that case alive. And sure enough, there were several gang members arrested for that case. Again, it's all about a little girl being killed in a big city with eight point something million people and people really caring about it, especially the detectives. It had to be solved. It had to be solved on behalf of like any kid that's ever been abused, every, any kid that's ever been maltreated. Another thing that happened in July of 2013 was that Jerry Giorgio retired from the Manhattan DA. Not because he wanted to. He had kidney problems. Eventually got a transplant. He did 38 years with the NYPD, another 15 with the DA. He died in September 2018. I'd never met him before, and I hadn't started working on this story. But I went to his wake because I wanted to pay my respects. The next summer, I went up to talk to Jerry's wife, Kay, and his daughter, Lisa Jocelyn. He was one of a kind. He was, I miss him. My husband was gorgeous. (laughs) He really was. The best father, the best husband. Oh, the smile. He had the best smile. And he interrogated you to the point that when he came home from work sometimes and he's asking me questions, I said, you're not at work. I'm not giving you the answer. I asked Kay if it felt like Jerry was married to her or to the job. Well, that's a good question. (laughs) Told me it was me, but he was really married to the police department. And I asked Lisa why her father was so driven. He was extremely kind of OCD. If he ever lost anything, it drove him crazy. He would go to the end of the earth to try to find something. He would not let it go. He was, you know, if you want to say a dog with a bone, he just was very methodical. When I I called him to tell him we were robbed, remember? And he, uh, we lived in Mount Vernon and I said, we've been robbed, you've been robbed. I said, yeah, and he says, we've been robbed. Well, I used the wrong word. It was really burglarized. Technically, people are robbed, places are burglarized. It probably wasn't a point that had to be made at the time. If you ask anyone who's ever worked with him, he has hundreds, probably even thousands of steno pads. Every detail was in his steno pads. So I think that it was that he just would never give up. And, and it was the challenge of solving a puzzle. He loved Sudoku, loved crossword puzzles. But I think there was also the other piece of it, that he just had this tremendously big heart, and he always wanted to help someone. If, if he would get a call that someone was in trouble for however, whatever kind of trouble, if he couldn't do it, his favorite line was, let me make a call. And it gave him great joy to be able to help and do things like that. Kay and Jerry had two kids, Lisa and Mark. You know, my brother was born with cerebral palsy. He was diagnosed at a year old. And my brother had countless operations on his brain, on his heart, on his legs. And 
My parents were very, very involved with taking care of him, mostly my mom, because she stayed home with my brother. You know, the one thing about raising my brother, which we all tried to do, and my parents instilled in me was that we were always going to try to make his life as quote-unquote normal as possible. Even though he had all of this stuff going on with the police department, he was there for Mark. He took him bowling. He took him every Saturday morning. They went out for breakfast at McDonald's. They met their friends out there. Like I said, even though he had this other life, he was there. Around 2004, Mark began to develop other health problems. You know, he was almost like, almost had stroke-like symptoms and we couldn't figure it out. They finally figured it out and he was diagnosed with ALS. Mark Giorgio died of ALS in January 2018, nine months before his father. We all always had a very big heart towards children and especially children with either a disability or a a child that a parent wouldn't be taken care of because we all, especially my mom and my dad, took such great care of my brother. So I think that may be... You know, he couldn't fathom or wrap his head around how a parent could allow something like that to happen to a child. He ate, drank, slept the baby hope case. If he got a call in the middle of the night and they said they had somebody down there for him to interrogate, he left the house and went. Jerry and Resnick would go every anniversary to the cemetery thinking somebody would show up, but no, it didn't happen. They really never let go. We'll be back after the break. Resnick's replacement in fugitive enforcement was James O'Neill. He's the police commissioner now. Everybody in New York City, not just people in the NYPD, knew about the Baby Hope case. But uh, the the longer I spent in the fugitive division and the more I got to speaking with the, the detectives in the cold case squad, the more I learned about it. And every anniversary, we would do media. And he had a history with Wendell Stratford. I've known Wendell over 30 years. A great person and an unbelievable detective. I think the thing that makes people good detectives, there's a number of qualities that you need. I think the number one thing you need is you need to really care about people. Uh, And you need to have great communication skills. You know, it's good to be able to use the computer and handle technology, all that stuff. But uh, unless you have those, the, the, the two... Uh, you're not going to be a great detective because you have to you have to be able to make that connection. People have to trust you, and when they trust you, they tell you the truth. So Wendell had the case, and then Sylvia Benet took it over until she retired. Then it was Bobby Dewhurst's turn. Bobby is uh, another person that's uh, relentless. Uh, he's, uh, he's a good communicator. He loves to talk. Uh, more importantly, he loves to listen. I think that's that. That's what makes him great. I'll never forget the first time I spoke to Bobby. It was in the hallway of Gold Street. Uh, he had me cornered there for about 45 minutes. But uh, you know, everything that was coming out of his mouth was pretty interesting. He's had he's had a great career, and he really does care about victims and their families. And that's what is really probably the most important thing about cold case. You know, it gives uh, closure. Might not be the worst. Uh, might might not be the best word. But because uh, I don't know if there's ever really closure from a murder, but at least it gives um, the families some sense of justice, some sense of satisfaction. And Dewhurst brought an interesting combination of skills to the case. He's a Marine, still in the reserves, and he carries himself in that straight-shouldered way of a man who's stood at attention. He's driven and disciplined. But he was also an undercover in narcotics, so he knew how to improvise. 
I asked him what he thought about taking on a case that was so old and so cold. He was more optimistic than I expected. I always think there's a, there could be a positive ending on every case. But in this case, it was difficult because it was a child. And so the thought was uh, try and locate her family. And then that would lead us back to her. I wanted media, but in particular, I wanted the, the Spanish uh, media because the little girl was presumed to be Spanish. If it was an abusive husband that maybe killed the child and then maybe uh, that woman went back to a native country, I figured she would be reached. Now, the NYPD press office, we call it DCPI for Deputy Commissioner of Public Information, doesn't just call up the daily news to say, we'd like this story on the front page, please. There are stories that we think the media doesn't cover enough and vice versa, but there is some give and take. I'm a director in the police commissioner's office now, and so I'm a lot closer to that side of things than when I was a street cop, but I still don't know exactly how it works. But Dewhurst had a friend in DCPI, a sergeant named Carlos Nieves. As you know, Detective Dewhurst has the gift of gab, and he's very talented at uh, what he does. So uh, July of 2013, I was in the office, and Bobby calls me up. he tells me that he's working a cold case that he needed some help with. So I said, not a problem, Bobby. It was a very uh, short turnaround. And it would obviously be helpful to have Chief Resnick on board. Bobby Dewhurst calls me and he says to me, boss, if you'll talk to the media, I can get up enough guys throughout the city. We'll blitz the city. Every address that appeared in the case, every name that appeared in the case, we'll have somebody there in that particular area to pass out flyers and actually do personal interviews of people. And so I agreed to it. Dewhurst filled out a department form to request media attention. It's routine paperwork. You'd get a signature at the borough, a signature at the chief of detectives, and drop off the form at DCPI. It was Friday, July 20th. The anniversary would be on Tuesday. At the chief of detectives, Sergeant Craig Gardella looked at the paper when it was handed to him. He could have just signed it and given it back. He didn't. I was assigned to the detective bureau for about 19 years. And when I got transferred from patrol as a rookie sergeant, I went to the 3-4 detective squad in 1997. And the 3-4 squad is where the Baby Hope case unfortunately happened. And Detective Jerry Giorgio was up there. One day I came into work and he asked me if I had time for something. I said, yeah, sure, what's up, Jerry? And he told me about Baby Hope, asked me if I knew about Baby Hope. I said, yeah, I remember about it from the TV and, and reading about it and he's seeing it on the news. It's a pretty, you know, horrific case and stuff like that. And he explained to me how he was the case detective and everything that has uh, to do with the cases here in the 3-4. And he always wanted to let new people know about it in case somebody called or walked into the precinct with information or a tip. So he spent probably two hours with me in one of the interview rooms going through the case from the time the cooler was found with Baby Hope in it all the way till just about present day. And it wasn't just Jerry Giorgio who had made such an impression on Gardella back in 97. Joe Resnick was the commanding officer of Manhattan North Detectives. He was a deputy inspector. And as a young sergeant there, he was like my mentor. Chief Resnick got promoted through his career and he went to different units. And I would stay in touch with him. And I visited him one day when he was the commanding officer of Fugitive Enforcement Division in uh, Brooklyn on Gold Street. Said hello, spent a couple minutes in his office, just, you know, chewing the fat. And what I noticed when I was in his office were a few boxes, and they said Baby Hope, 
And then fast forward, maybe 2012, 2013, I'm, I'm working in the chief of detective's office, and he is the commanding officer of the narcotics division, and I would see him more often. One day I was in his office, and I saw the exact same boxes that I saw years ago, and I finally said to him, I said, Chief, are those the boxes that you had when you were in fugitive enforcement? And he turned around and looked, and he's like, yeah. I said, are those Baby Hope boxes? And he said, yeah, they are. Every command that I go to, I carry them with me. I said, oh, are they copies of the case? He's like, no. He goes, that's the, the real stuff. He goes, I don't want to take a chance of this getting lost or destroyed or accidentally thrown away. He felt that as long as he was with the police department, he was going to carry the torch, so to speak, and have the evidence readily available in case there was a break in it. And I just thought I, that just hit me so surreal. And I thought that this gentleman is a two-star chief in narcotics now. He's not even in the detective bureau anymore. He still has that passion for this one case. And so it's a very lucky thing that Craig Gardella hadn't taken the day off or been at lunch. Dewhurst could have gotten the form signed by any supervisor in the office. I asked uh, Detective Dewhurst if he was willing, with my help, to make this a bigger production. We only had a couple of days. So I said, a friend of mine, uh, Detective Lena Donnell, is working in Crime Stoppers right now. Go into Crime Stoppers, tell her you just spoke to me. Maybe we can get a new, fresh, wanted poster made up. Gardella went into action. First, he got the approval of the chief of detectives, the chief of D's. Things get done when three-star bosses want them done. Gardella was the operations sergeant there, and he really knew how to operate. He went downstairs to the printing section to see if they could do a big job in a rush. He wanted thousands of posters, flyers, palm cards. Crime Stoppers is going to do a new poster. It's going to be really good. They're going to do big ones for the telephone poles and the trees. He called in favors. He was friends with Inspector Raul Pintos at Community Affairs, and he asked him for teams of bilingual cops to be assigned to the 3-4 for the day. He called up Inspector Paul Ciora, the commanding officer of the Highway Division, to ask for LED billboards. He called up DCPI and found out that Carlos Nieves was already on board. Just to be sure, he kept his eye out for the commanding officer at DCPI. I saw her coming through the elevators and going to her office, and I got out of my desk and I caught her in the hallway. He called a sergeant at Crime Stoppers who was working the day tour, and when the sergeant came in for the 4 to 12 shift, he called again. She said she'll have her Crime Stoppers van out there with a looped message in English and Spanish. They'll also be set up with a table where if people want to come up and get literature on, on the case, and she'll also have Crime Stoppers detectives there who will be versed in the case. You know, they'll get a cram course on, on the, the bullet points of it. One detective at Crime Stoppers who didn't need the cram course was Elena Donnell. In 2005, I was assigned to the Hate Crimes Task Force. And so I was able to get the opportunity to go to the homicide course. And one of the biggest things about the course was Joel Resnick talking about Baby Hope. And so he actually presented like a whole block and a PowerPoint of everything, crime scene photos. And you know, Joe, he commands your attention. Chief Resnick, you, you can't talk, you can't blink, you can't do anything. So everybody was just like transfixed on every word, everything he said, because it was just so heartbreaking. And before that, I had seen him on America's Most Wanted with John Walsh. But now seeing him in person and hearing about it, it just never leaves you. 
to July 2013, I'm working in Crime Stoppers. Sergeant Gardella sends Dewhurst to me, and he says, Elena, I want you to create the poster. I want you to just do everything necessary to make sure that the poster is right. So I didn't have any physical information. I didn't have the case folder. I didn't have anything. When you first brought the poster to Resnick for approval, what did he say? Oh, I got yelled at for five minutes at the door because he wasn't like, why are you here? <laughs> and then I let him finish. And when he's finished, he's like, why didn't you say that? So he had everything at his desk right behind him in the case folder, the actual case folder. He gave me, he said, sure, no problem, sat down, he gave me everything, gave me the actual wording on the poster, pictures, everything the way it should have been. At which point I saw Detective Elena Donnell come back upstairs and she looked like she went 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. <laughs> Thank God we went to Chief Resnick because he remembered that Mayor Dinkins approved the mayor's reward. We had the police commissioner's reward for 10 and then we had the mayor's reward approved by Mayor Dinkins back in the day for 10. So that was a total of $22,000 as opposed to the 2,000 from Crime Stoppers. And we didn't have to worry about getting any paperwork approved. The weekend passed. The printers started printing and DCPI worked their contacts. On Monday at Cold Case, they went over the game plan. We sat down and we decided to make it a, a unit, as in the entire unit, uh, pushed. Everyone's going to go out at one time. The day before, we went up to the area, we checked it out. Tuesday was D-Day. On his way into work, Craig Gardella stopped by the staging area in the 3-4 to see how things were shaping up. Came down the highway, and as soon as I got off the exit, I saw the big um, traffic sign from the NYPD Highway Patrol there. Any information on Baby Hope? Please call Crime Stoppers. Then I got off the highway. I thought it was maybe it was a festival or some type of block party or something. And as I got closer, there was news vans from every single major uh, news outlet in New York City, as well as Telemundo and Noticia 47. They were all there. So I did the press conference. He had mustered up all these detectives from different homicide squads throughout the city. They were out there. They were up and down the streets. They, they were up on highways, especially like the Henry Hudson Parkway. Um, passing out flyers, stopping people, asking them questions. A lot of people were confused. They thought it was something that had just happened because, you know, there were so many police. At first, it really wasn't a warm welcome. It's summer. It's a really hot day. It's like 90 degrees. People are like, why are you bothering us? But then when they read the actual cards and they figured out why we were there, the whole attitude and reception changed for the better. Chief Resnick did interviews, but it was an all-day event. Bobby Dewhurst found himself with cameras and microphones pointed at him. So at first it was the captain was going to make this statement. Then the captain said, I, I don't know enough about the case. And then it was Inspector Hughes was going to come and make the statement. When it all boiled down to when Inspector Hughes showed up, they decided that I was going to make the statements. So then the next day in the newspapers, it said Dewhurst is the first to admit we have nothing without the little girl's name. And I thought I was going to get in big trouble. Detective Dewhurst had done so many interviews, and we had two Spanish-language television stations that wanted a soundbite. Uh, back then, I would have had to call uh, my supervisor in the office and then call the then DCPI to get permission to do a Spanish-language interview. So uh, I knew that if I went through that process, it wasn't going to happen because the reporters are on a, on a tight uh, time schedule. So I just decided that I was going to do the interview. 
los padres de esta niña nunca reportaron a esta niña que no estaba en la casa. So, estamos buscando la asistencia del público. Si alguien sabe algo, que pueda llamar a la policía. And everything wound up working out. Uh, I never got any backlash for it, so it was good. Were you a little nervous? Uh, actually, yes. Uh, that, that was probably one of the first television interviews that I did. I had listened to Detective Duher so many times, so I already knew the information that he wanted out there. One of the things that I, I mentioned to the reporter was that what the case detective found strange about this was that the parents of this child had never reported that child missing. There were no missing case reports for Baby Hope. It was on every news channel. Uh, New York One ran it every hour, and it was on the 5 o'clock news, the 6 o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news, the 11 o'clock news. And so the day had been a huge success, beyond what any of the detectives could have expected. I asked Elena if she thought they'd finally get the call they'd been waiting for. I didn't expect anything to come of it, honestly. I was so shocked. The call finally came in. I don't think it was the next morning. It was probably two days after. I think it was the next morning. It was the next morning? Yeah. I know that it was two in the afternoon because I was leaving at four. I remember that. And um, the caller was hesitant. You could hear it on the phone. It was just myself and Detective Alice Salello in the office, but I kind of signaled to Alice, you know, like, this is it with my finger, like, this is the call. So she answered all the other calls, and I wouldn't get interrupted. From what the caller explained, what they saw on TV matched the story they heard. But when they actually heard the story, they thought the person telling them was crazy. They didn't believe it. So they were actually sick to their stomach when they saw the news and saw, wow, a baby in a bag and in a cooler, this is real. So that's, that's how it started. So the caller spoke Spanish. Now, I speak Spanish, but it's not perfect. I understand it better than I speak it. So they had a translator on the phone, and the translator spoke English perfectly. They started out by saying they saw the news, they saw the Spanish news, and they may have information that matches what was broadcasted, and it started that way. And they said they were afraid they didn't want their whole lives to be on display. They were afraid of themselves being made public, and I assured them that that wouldn't happen. I said, you could give us a fake name, and I said, here's the most important thing. Think about this for a second. I said, if you have family, if you have children in your family, not one person in 20 years thought enough of this child to call and say anything. Not a family member, nobody. Nobody reported this child missing. Think about that. And then you could hear the, okay. And then I said, look, if you have any faith in God, any religion, please just think, search in your heart. Anything you could tell me, I don't care how strange it sounds, will help because we've got nothing. And then that's what got the story rolling. Once the caller knew that I wasn't going to do anything to compromise her identity or get her over-involved where she felt she would be exposed and unsafe, she was okay. And they told me that maybe five years before, a person in a laundromat in the Bronx told them that they saw their sister in a bag dead in a refrigerator in the Bronx. They saw their sister. They saw their sister dead in a bag. The tipster is in a laundromat. Right, in the Bronx. And there's a woman she knows. Yes, an acquaintance, not a friend. An acquaintance, someone she's seen at the laundromat before. They're just doing laundry together? Just doing laundry. Out of nowhere, she says... Out of nowhere, she just starts this story about how you know, and it's bothering her. Uh, I looked in the refrigerator when I was little, something to that effect, not exact. And in the refrigerator was my sister's body in a bag. 
in a plastic bag in the refrigerator. No description of the color of the bag, nothing like that. Just she knew that it was her sister in that bag dead in the refrigerator. Just seeing the news, she said she felt sick. She said because then she realized that the person telling her the story wasn't crazy and that it was actually true. But at the time, hearing the story, she kind of dismissed her as maybe having mental problems because it just was so, like, out there. Like, okay, you saw this, but you didn't do anything about it. But I think what she didn't put together at the time was the person telling her the story was a child herself when she saw this and didn't know what to do. So that's, that's what was, like, really profound and so sad that at the time that maybe if we had the information, we could have done something sooner. But the person calling us didn't know, didn't hear it in the news, hadn't seen it, hadn't put it together. Elena Donnell had them on the phone for an hour and a half. She got as much information out of them as possible. The tip had lots of really specific details, which is what you need to chase down the lead. But the whole story could have been a fantasy or even a bad joke. Elena Donnell didn't think so. So Crime Stoppers was where I finally ended my career, and so this was kind of like a gift right before retiring. But the one thing that I really need to highlight to you is that the tipster never wanted money. Just the mention of it was insulting to her, and she was like, that's not why I'm calling. She was like, I can't accept that. And at the time, it was about $20,000. She wouldn't accept it. She says, I, I won't hear of it. Please don't mention it. This is blood money, and I don't want anything to do with that. She said, I just wanted to clear my conscience, and if I could help, I will. Never called back. Never took a tip number. Never called back. Next time on Break in the Case, detectives close in. So I went down a few doors. I knocked on the door, and when I seen Maribel... She looked just like the picture. Breaking the Case is produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. Thanks to the New York Times and CBS News. Thank you for listening. This is Breaking the Case. I'm your host, Detective Carrie Riley. Until next time, be safe. <laughs>